0: How's it going, Matthew? It's really good to have you back on the podcast here. It's been uh I mean it's been probably 18 months since you were last on the podcast. I'm really excited, you know, for what we uh what we have in store today.
1: Yeah, great. Thank you very much for having me back. Time flies when you're having fun, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's uh it was that long ago, but it's just like one thing after the next, you know, in our lives where it's like traveling and just constant uh constant go on different topics.
1: Yeah, indeed. And uh 2023 has been particularly busy on many many fronts everywhere in the yeah. world. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, before we dive into, you know, a 2023 recap, um why don't you tell my audience, you know, who you are, what your expertise is and all that good information, right? Because you know, maybe maybe there's some new listeners that haven't heard you before, and I just want to make sure that everyone knows, you know, who you are and what you provide in the field.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, my name is Mathieu Gorge. I'm the founder and CEO of VG Trust, we are a software provider of uh, GRC solutions, and we've got an award-winning solution called VG One that allows you to prepare for, validate, and manage continuous compliance with about a hundred security frameworks worldwide specifically um, anything that has to do with data privacy, information governance and compliance. So as you can imagine, all the usual suspects, uh, PCI, HIPAA, GDPR, NIST, ISO, um, and so on. And so um, I've been in cybersecurity for longer than I care to admit and probably been about 25 years. I started when cyber was was not called cyber, it was called network security, and then it became content security, internet security, data security, privacy, and now we're in, in the area of uh, Global compliance and global security. Uh, I'm involved with a number of security think tanks, including the the Vigitrust Global Advisory Board, which is a a non for profit uh, think tank with about 1,350 members from 30 countries, um, and we talk about what's happening in the industry in, in under Chatham House rules. One of the things I would say uh, straight off is that um, uh, you know my view is that security. if you work in security and you do your job correctly nobody knows your name but if something goes wrong you become public enemy number one very quickly within the organization and it and it carries a stigma in the industry moving forward and i think that as a community we need to look after each other and we need to make sure that we share best practices not just by saying this is what you should do but also saying you know what this is where I made mistakes. I'm going to share that with you so that you don't have to make my mistakes. And hopefully you will share your mistakes with me so I don't have to make them.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, and I think that that kind of experience is often overlooked. Um, I, I, I used to work for a company and they were bringing in a new VP of security. And he was recently at, I think, two or three other places back to back that were breached and they were big, huge breaches, you know, like the target breach and a couple other ones. Like I think home Depot, and it, it, like it, it, it could have been, you know, a very unfortunate situation, right? Like this guy just came into the role and they get breached and it's pinned on him and whatnot. Right. Um, but everyone internally was like, Ooh, are we sure we want to, you know, hire that person? And, you know, the only person that like actually stood up for him was like the senior director that would be reporting to him and said, you know, like, well, why wouldn't we want that experience in-house? You know, like we haven't been breached. He's gone through it. He knows what what happens, what can happen and how to handle that situation.
1: Yeah. And, you know, the reality is that uh, there's only two types of companies out there, the ones that have been breached and the ones that don't know if it has been breached. Um, and and it's nearly better to understand that you have been rich so you can better the systems, the processes, the security awareness, the culture of security, so that you can make that an ongoing journey. I always say that that security is a a, a journey and not a destination. So by the time you reach compliance with regulation one, two, three, or X, Y, Z, you're your your ecosystem has evolved you know maybe people have left maybe you've acquired a business maybe there's a new system that has been rolled out and so your risk surface changes all the time and so to say that we are secure right now you might be secure for a millisecond but everything is dynamic and so you need to work with people that understand that and somebody that's already dealt with a breach most likely will understand it better than somebody that hasn't. That doesn't mean that the skills are not equal. I'm I'm just saying that having to deal with a breach from a a PR perspective, a technology perspective, a legal perspective, um, uh, you know, an internal perspective is something that unless you've lived it, you can, you, it's difficult to grasp. Now you can get, amazing training for it and you will you will be much better at dealing with it if you've had the training but uh unfortunately it you won't really grasp it until it happens to you if that makes sense.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. You know, you bring up there's there's two kinds of companies, companies that know that they've been breached and the ones that don't know that they've been breached yet. Right? Um do you I have an interesting question that's probably a loaded question. When companies have, you know, subsidiaries or let's say branch branches in China or more adversarial countries, right? Um, do you assume that they're already breached and they? It's more of an internal breach at that point. Um, does that make sense? Because you know of how China and Russia just throwing out a couple adversarial countries out there, right? Um, How they typically operate is, you know, when you operate in their country, they own all the IP that you create there. So do you you see it that way or or not necessarily?
1: So I, I don't necessarily think that they've been breached or spied on. But what I would say is that if you you need to understand your ecosystem and what I mean by your ecosystem is, Anything that 's behind your firewalls, your hybrid workforce, your applications, your third parties, fourth parties, any anybody that interacts with with your systems even even from time to time, even sporadically and if some of those subsidiaries or branches or people are based in a country that is at risk, um, then you need to run a tabletop exercise as to what it would mean. If you could no longer get to that data, if you could no longer get the physical assets, the hardware, for instance, back into your own country, if you could no longer uh, talk to the regulator, the local regulator, because what might happen, and, and that happens specifically with Russia and Ukraine, is that from one day to the next, uh, suddenly it became super difficult to get your data. And even if you have a backup of your data because of nationalization of Western assets in Russia, for instance, you you will never get that data back. And you can be sure that at that stage that data is going to be analyzed. So, um you know, there are currently about 10 plus um really bad conflicts worldwide and of course you you hear about Russia and Ukraine and you you hear about Israel and Gaza but there are a few others that don't really make uh, uh, the headlines the same way you need to map out where you do business and the impact on your business and i think that's where um the boards are 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 really starting to wake up suddenly in 2023 and into 2024 that you you know you you can't just assume that because you do business in a country right now, and it's all solid, there's the right um, policies and the right backups and so on, that you don't have to actually um, plan for the worst. Um, And and I believe that as as humans, we are generally thinking um, optimists, sometimes too much. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's a case of understanding what am I ready to lose Have I trained for that? Because as I said, if you've trained for it, even if you haven't really experienced it, but if you've done a tabletop exercise as to, oh, from tomorrow onwards, we can no longer do business in Taiwan, you know what that means and you've prepared for it. And I think that it leads me to uh, the uh, World Economic Forum's Global Cybersecurity Outlook 2023 report where essentially they list all of the top risks that organizations need to deal with. And the first risk is not the advantage of AI. It's not the rise in security breaches. It's the geopolitical fragmentation. So in other words, what's happening in countries where you may or may not do business will actually impact your business again i go back to russia invading ukraine you can you you can see a huge rise in ransomware attacks coming from russia into countries that are openly supporting ukraine you can uh, it's reasonably well documented that there were a number of critical infrastructure attacks on the Ukrainian uh, critical infrastructure assets in the nine months leading up to the the physical attack. And then that kind of dropped about two weeks before the physical attack, and now it's back up. And so we are monitoring as an industry and threat intelligence, then the countries that are getting the most attacks right now, because it could be, it's not guaranteed, but it could be a sign of physical attacks. And I think that's... um, you know i'm not telling anyone to forget about privacy and and so on absolutely not you need you need to continue working on that but i do think that right now is a good time to go back to basics and to say what is my ecosystem what am i protecting what am i willing to lose in 2024 what what can i absolutely not afford to lose in 2024 and that will drive your threat intelligence and your, and your, and your protection strategy in, into the new year, I guess.
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. You know, I, I actually, I, I took part in a tabletop exercise before, and those are, those are extremely good at identifying the areas of improvement. Um, it's really interesting, you know, they'll, they'll come up with a different scenario and you have to work through it and everyone on the call, you know, has a role. Um, I, I've seen it from both ends, where everyone knew what they were doing, and then the other side was, you know, no one really knew what they were doing. And, you know, in this tabletop exercise, the company was was breached for an entire week before security even knew about it. Right? Um, it's 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 um it's it's a really good tool that organizations, you know, should and typically do use to really. You know, identify those gaps and actually it's really important to shore them up once you identify them um, you know now now looking back into 2023 what were some of your top items i guess that happened in 2023 that you think may be setting the stage for
1: 2024 um well uh, from a technical perspective the rise of ransomware uh, attacks um, the it, scaling in the the number of attacks against CEOs and C-suites um, from a social engineering perspective, that was extremely visible. Uh, what we saw as well is a number of key executives being prosecuted and uh, in very limited cases uh, being uh, jailed for not doing the right thing. Uh, with regards to privacy, and that's, that that can be a, a game changer. Um, we, we saw a number of new regulations coming out uh, in, in specific areas, and we saw obviously the advance of NIS2 in Europe with regards to critical infrastructure protection. Um, we saw a number of new uh, data privacy regulations in I think about six states in the U.S., which is good, but they're not all exactly going the same direction. So I think we, unfortunately, we're still a long way away from uh, the federal equivalent from uh, of of um, uh, GDPR. So uh, we obviously saw... Uh, the uh, Ukrainian-Russian conflict going on and the impact of that. Um, We we now have uh, the conflict between Israel and Gaza. And um, uh, ironically, a a lot of cybersecurity funding comes out of Israel every year, uh, not just to the U.S., but also to Europe and to Asia. And that funding is probably going to slow down, meaning less money to invest in cyber also meaning more attacks on Israel, also meaning potentially another equivalent of shadow i t coming out of uh gaza and and people supporting gaza so i you know it's a very dynamic and environment what what we also saw is um uh, a rise in that idea of security culture. And that is mentioned as well in the, in the World Economic Forum report where we see more and more business people trying to engage with security and compliance people to understand what they can and cannot do and for them to work together. Um, anyway, I go back to what I was saying at the beginning that, uh, you know, if you work in security, nobody wants to talk to you. And generally speaking, it's because you're either telling the business, no, you can't do this because you're going to put aside of compliance or you're going to increase our risk surface beyond what we can accept. Or you're like, hey, uh, you go to the board and you say, hey, the business wants me to do that. Can I get another million dollars to make it happen securely? So it's a difficult one. But now we're seeing that trend where more and more business people are talking to security and compliance. And I think we're going to see... A bit more of that in 2024, into into the next two to three years.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a lot to unpack there. You know, I, one of the things that you brought up previously that that I have talked about is the fact that now we're seeing a lot of you know digital attacks or cyber warfare attacks before kinetic attacks ever take place. Um, do you see that? Know, ramping up at all. Um because I feel like there should almost be like, you know, a watch group that, you know, is saying like, oh, we're seeing an increased, you know, specialized attack in, you know, Europe or wherever it might be. Um and you know, kind of like put out the watch on that because I feel like everyone in cybersecurity is aware of that. They they understand that and they they know the implications of that. Um, but it's it's much more difficult to get people outside of cybersecurity to fully grasp the concept of oh like they're going to take down my my phone network before they you know send troops in right
1: well so you know the issue with critical infrastructure assets is that As citizens, as dual public, we believe that this is the the responsibility of the government. And what we do not understand is that depending on the survey you look at, but generally speaking, it's between 70 and 80 percent of critical infrastructure assets like uh, electricity, power, uh, food, uh, transportation and so on, is actually owned and are operated by the commercial sector. Um, by By private companies, and the part that is actually managed uh, purely by the government um, is generally speaking only the army and and the police systems because even hospitals and specifically in the u s uh, you know, half half of the hospital systems are actually private systems. Uh, not so much in Europe, but but still, it's parts are, are still actually private. And so, what you want to do is you want to uh, bring the awareness level with Joe Public that um, everything starts with them, and which actually leads me on to another. Um, Uh, I suppose, uh, uh, another issue here, and we are seeing that more and more over the last few years, is that concept of your own critical infrastructure. So right now, most of you have three, four connected devices on you, you know, a smartwatch and um, maybe a personal cell phone, a business cell phone and an iPad or whatever. And that's before you even get into your car, which is completely connected. And then you get to your house and so on. And so uh, if I, educate you, either as the industry and or the government, as to the value of that. And I can say, well, if you take care and if you if you are careful, nobody's going to be able to drive by and uh, order whatever they want by hacking into your phone that is linked to your uh, fridge that has a system that allows you to connect to, to uh, uh, Walmart or wherever to replenish everything. And now I can buy different things and get them sent to my home instead of yours. Um, and that is the problem, but it's not life-threatening. But let's say I hack into your HVAC system, your air conditioning system. Well, it depends on where you live, but like if you live in Michigan in the middle of uh, summer and you can't get uh, cool air, or in the middle of winter and you can get heating, that will become Critical. And so I think that what we need to do is we need to, like, if people do that at home, they're more likely to pay attention at work and vice versa. So it needs to be a continuous cycle of educating them on, on both sides. Um, I, I, I do think that again, it goes back to that idea of the, your, your risk surface. So my risk surface before when I was walking was just, Social engineering, my watch was not connected. I didn't have a cell phone or my cell phone was so dumb that you couldn't even hack into it. Now I'm like a walking attack surface and everywhere I go, it it keeps growing. So I need to to train people to understand, hey, do I really need that connected wallet? Um, Do I really need this? Do I really need that? Do the benefits outweigh... Uh, the, the risks. So if I have a connected wallet and I lose it, I can connect to it. That's great. I can see where it is. But um, if for some reason there's no def- there's only default settings on it, I might be able to connect to your to your wallet. And then once you're home, I use the wallet to piggyback onto your your computers, and then to piggyback onto your VPNs that go from your computer to. To your workplace, you can see where I'm going, and it's not that far-fetched. To be honest, I mean, I'm not that technical, and I think um, I could I could do a demonstration reasonably easily. Not that I would do that, by the way.
0: Yeah, it's it's actually a lot easier than what people would assume. In, in my opinion, you know, like I I'm not a hacker by any means, and I could absolutely pull something off like that. Um especially in you know twenty twenty three where these exploits and packages are kind of already pre made and you just gotta find the right one and you know get in
1: you you raise a good point you know um the twenty twenty three has seen a huge increase in hacking as a service where you go to the deep web and it's not even digging too deep and you hmm. can buy a kit where you create your own ransomware or your own DDoS. And so, and you, you literally configure it the same way as you configure your iPhone. And, 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 you know, for some of them, they actually have a customer service line where they provide better customer service than, um, uh, normal companies. And, and so I think that. You know the the level of skills that an attacker needs to have keeps going down, whilst the attack surface keeps going up, and so you can see where you can see that's creating a huge vacuum. And as an industry, we need to work together. And I think that um, I applaud all of the all of the work that's been done in in 2023 around uh, teaching kids how to code uh teaching them cyber security or the sense of security from primary school up to you know up to college because if we don't catch them now they're go- they're going to be our next security people or our next uh, head of IT or a head of database in like 5 years or 10 years and they're just going to be walking targets um with my name on it you know at the back my company name and so I don't want that to happen so I actually not only do I have a duty but there's definitely something in it for me to do that, um, which actually leads me on to uh, um, a- another uh, another point. I'm in the process of writing uh, my second book around the life of CISOs, but not around, not generally speaking around you know the, the, the certifications that they have, but I've, I asked them all the same 15 questions in the same order about work-life balance and the threats that they see out there. And one very interesting question um, that I ask them is: Do you think we are creating the right succession plan for when you get out of the industry? Either you're going to go do something else, or you know, some of you have been in, in IT or in, in cyber for 20 years. Maybe you're going to want to retire. How do we extract the level of experience that you have so that we can document it and pass it on to new people? And are we ac- actually creating people with the right skills? Or, uh, are, are, are the, 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 is the curricular out there too outdated for the new threats? And, uh, I see a divide. I, so I set out to do a hundred interviews. I'm about three quarters of, uh, into it right now, but I see a divide. Some people say, no, actually, we are doing the right thing. Others are saying, I don't think we are. And I mostly don't think that we. We have the ability to pass on our knowledge, which I think is an interesting point, because if you think about it, um, you know, people that became network security managers in and around early 2000s would have had maybe five to 10 years experience in IT already. So these people are all coming up to retirement in the next five to 10 years Um, so we're going to have that cliff of skills going down. I'm not saying that new people don't have skills and we absolutely do. And in fact, they're probably faster at some other, uh, at some things that we oldies don't, you know, we take time to process. Um, but we understand the value of process. Whereas younger generations, they want everything faster because they they never grew up with, with the idea of, you know, waiting for a file to download. That's, that's unknown to them. So, um, why would you wait five days to do the right thing to find out where the breach came from? you have a you You have a hunch you go after it, and in going after it quickly, you actually destroy all the the legal evidence that you, you an older person would have found within ten days but would have been able to use. I think we have a bit of a challenge there in in the next five years, five to ten years
0: mm. yeah, everyone always talks about the talent shortage or the talent gap. And not a lot of people are bringing up the fact that a lot of the people that are in leadership roles or have been, you know, very experienced in their job uh, for the past, you know, 10, 15 years, they're all retiring fairly soon. You know, I, I actually got brought on at a company to replace someone as their security expert that had been at the company for 25 plus years they were retiring in the next you know six or nine months, something like that, and you know that that <laughs> that knowledge dump right that we had to go through i mean it's every day for you know nine months. Why did you make this choice? what was this situation? who did you work with on this? who do you trust within the organization all of those sorts of things um you know and and now this this company that i that I came and worked for, they had a very forward-thinking view. You know, they were very good at thinking ahead, planning ahead. And so things like that were always on their roadmap of who's retiring when, what skill sets do we have to pick up, what skill sets do you know we need to augment and replace, and things like that. But not every organization is thinking like that. And that's that's a huge challenge that's going to be coming up very shortly. It's almost like a different it's almost like a different problem from the talent shortage that we already have.
1: Yeah, and I, I think, you know, um, there are a lot of talented people that are coming on the market, That That's not exactly the, the problem. The problem is, did we give them as an industry the right pointers so that they can either learn what we need right now or have... A, a basis that's good enough that they can they can be molded into what we what we need, because um, obviously there's no point in creating an expert in forensics if we have enough people in forensics, but equally if you know forensics really well, you'll be able to add value in incident response in 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 purple team and so on. So you'll be able to reshape your knowledge, but I I, I think the worry is more about. Um, Are are we creating people that have too narrow of a scope and that scope is valid today, but may not be valid tomorrow and will they manage to retrain? Um, I'll give you an an example, um, uh, very very topical. Uh, So Let's go back to 2018 for just one second. 2018 GDPR was enacted and so overnight, millions of people were GDPR experts. They just added that to their LinkedIn or their resumes or whatever. Today, everybody is an AI expert. And more worryingly, a lot of people are AI security experts. So that's great, at least there's an interest, but the challenge is not really just in AI security as in securing the code and securing the LLMs and so on, because there's emerging technology on that. It's about AI governance. And there are very few real AI governance uh, courses out there that allow you to grasp the real risks and the way to embrace AI in a, in a way that allows you to govern the process and to deal with issues. And so what I wouldn't want to see is um, tens of thousands of AI cyber experts being born over the next uh, 12 months and they're actually not trained the right way and they actually add no value, but they think that they're going to be able to get jobs because they're probably not going to be able to get the jobs they want and they may actually not add value or not add as much value. And so I think it's really important for us as the industry to work with uh, third level universities to go and do guest lectures. I do guest lectures for various universities. It allows me to keep my finger on the pulse to understand how young younger people think what they want to learn, the questions that they ask and so on, as opposed to saying, oh, the next big, big thing is um, AI risk management. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I mean, the thing with AI is we don't exactly know as an industry and anybody t- that tells you they know, uh, take it with a pinch of salt because it's such a fast-moving target that we don't exactly know just yet.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point that you bring up. You know, it's a lot easier to add these, you know, key terms to your LinkedIn or to your resume than it is to actually, you know, create the skills and get the skills that are needed to actually, you know, fulfill that AI security title. Um, And I, I feel like, the only people that they're, that they're harming is themselves, right? Because they get a job. Maybe they fool someone at the job, right? Because they know a little bit more, you know, than what the person interviewing them does. And so they get the job and then they get that job and they fail at it, you know? And it's just one failure after the next and they're constantly trying to play catch up, especially in an advanced area like AI security that, you know, really isn't even defined right now. You know, well, one it, we don't know where AI is going, and two, you know, AI security is something that we're just starting to talk about now.
1: Right, and I and I think it's it's great to have an interest in AI. It's great to understand uh, Chat GPT, but AI is not Chat GPT. Like it's way bigger than that, you know. And 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 I think that um, uh, you know, right now there's good expertise in the market around the data that you can feed AI and the risks that you take and how to mitigate those risks and how to uh, classify the data and maybe have a filter and train people and so on. But in terms of um, the the full architecture of AI, the coding that goes in, the AI coding that goes into your standard code and how to uh, keep. Track of that and and actually manage that process. It, it's still early days. Now that said, you know, uh, in the last two years, um, there's been about thirty five new AI related regulations and standards that came out. Um, and, and you know, there's been stuff like, for instance, the uh, EU AI Act. Uh, there's been other things coming out from the industry, and it reminds me of the beginning of the cybersecurity industry where. Um, believe it or not, back in, in 2000, 2005, there were a lot of industry standards that came out. Some of them were uh, driven by vendors, some of them were driven by associations and so on. And we're seeing that right now. And But you have to remember that if you dial back today, uh, according to the UCF, the Unified Compliance Framework, there's about four and a half thousand regulations around privacy data and security but the reality is they all dial back to about 20 and then when you look at those 20 they really dial back to ISO NIST CIS GDPR potentially PCI as a restricted one and a few on the on the software security side so it's very likely that we will have the same with regards to AI. So I would keep an I, I would keep a watch on that if, if I was interested in working in risk management for AI. Hmm.
0: So where do you think, you know, what are some key areas that you think are going to be, you know, really booming that people need to pay attention to in 2024?
1: I, I, I definitely think we're going to see some attacks on personal infrastructure, so uh there are already vendors coming out with, with ways to help you secure your, your infrastructure at home, all of your stuff that's connected. Um I, I think we're gonna to continue to see ransomware. I have absolutely no doubt there's gonna be a few new zero-day attacks every year that, that's what happens. Um we we are seeing um as always attacks on uh, government, but mostly financial institutions. Um, it's also interesting to see what's happening in the UK with regards to PSD3 and everything that has to do with authentication and strong authentication uh, identification. So uh, I would suspect there's going to be there's going to be continued investment in that. Uh, I think we're going to we're also going to see ridiculous things being connected. Um, I, I, I heard that, that example the other day of of a vacuum cleaner, um, completely connected that actually goes and vacuums on a regular basis, but actually maps out your, your property. So now you know that Mathieu has a two bedroom or three bedroom apartments on one floor or two floors. Can you imagine where this is going? You know, um, I, I do believe that a number of uh attacks are going to be automated. But I also do believe that a number of counterattacks are going to be automated using AI. Uh, that's the good side of AI. Um and, and that's good because whilst a system is able to deal with the noise, the actual analysts can deal with the real attacks or the attacks that that require more thinking. Um, and so um I I we are going to see more regulation, of course, and we're going to see some new AI regulation. We're going to see some updates to uh, EU GDPR. If there's a chance that the UK is going to lose their adequacy because the, the, the UK GDPR currently is um, uh, recognized as being equivalent to uh, European GDPR. But the ICO, the Information Commissioner's Office, has already taken steps to go a different direction than the European Data Protection Board. So if they lose their adequacy, that will mean that from an EU perspective, transferring data to the UK will be the same as, as transferring it to the US or Mexico or Australia. And you can see, you know, that that the evolution of that. So um are we gonna see a digital Pearl Harbor like we 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 all think might happen at some stage? I don't know that 2024 is the right year for that. But I do believe that the geopolitical fragmentation is is not going to go away, um, and we're just going to have to learn how to deal with it. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised if people offering uh, red teaming and purple teaming and and tabletop exercises uh, were make a fortune in 2024, and, and it wouldn't probably wouldn't be a bad thing for the industry. Hmm. So
0: what are what are some areas that our current AI policy and governance is lacking in, right? Because I feel like this uh, this field is advancing pretty rapidly and, you know, per usual, right, the the governance of it and the policy behind it um, is lagging behind. So what are some areas that, you know, we kind of need to, I guess, pick up a pace in?
1: Well, there are a number of uh, best practices and checklists that are available. So the IAPP, the the International Association for Privacy Professionals, um, came out this year with uh, a a, a very good document that has, I think, about 65 keywords and key topics that you need to look at in your AI um, initiatives uh, from a technical and a policy and a training perspective. So you're going to see more of that Um, There are, as I said, a number of vendors coming out with interesting technology about um, how to make sure that whatever you do using AI doesn't actually impact on the generic codes of your software. So I think we're going to see some more of that. Um, And it wouldn't be, you know, I think what we need is like a a NOAA top 10 and a SANS top 20 for AI. Um, and, and it, and it's coming, you know, there, there are a few out there that are just industry driven, but there's going to be, there's going to be some more. Um, I, I would urge people to try and grasp the idea of AI governance. Uh, and there are some very good AI governance forums coming out right now. Um, I spend a lot of time attending those, those, those events and I'm fascinated at, at, at the the, I suppose the conversion, uh, the, the 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 two cybersecurity and AI trying to meet somewhere in the middle. It's an interesting thing to watch because um, cybersecurity is very, at this stage, you know, like there's a risk or there isn't a risk. We can mitigate the risk or, or we can't because we understand it reasonably well, but we don't really understand AI. I think another thing to, to keep in mind is if you're familiar with the Cloud Security Alliance, the CSA, um, uh, they are basically saying that protecting Um, your AI systems and infrastructure will follow a a similar trajectory to what we've learned about the cloud. So initially everybody was saying, well, I'm not moving to the cloud too dangerous. I don't know what's there. And then eventually you see, you have no choice but to move some critical elements of what you do to the cloud. But now there's good practice. There's uh, ways to protect it. There's continuous compliance. And I think uh, that the csa says that that, that it 's going to follow a similar path, and they may be, they may well be right on that you know we 're not going to be able to not embrace AI but we need we need the right structure that organizations can 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 use and if you think about it, um, very small organizations or mid sized organizations are well able to embrace the cloud now because there 's so much expertise out there, and that 's where we need to get to with 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 AI, or at least with uh, mainstream AI, I'm not talking about Terminator and that type of stuff. I'm talking about what we're trying to do right now, which is to use AI to automate the mundane and um, and 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 other tasks that that our time would be better used to do something else. You know?
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. <clears throat> you know, so you brought up the prospect of potentially you know a cyber pearl harbor or something like that right where now okay so so from my perspective when i'm thinking about that um we're th- i'm thinking of an attack that you know is very large in scale that kind of you know changes the world forever right in a in a very tangible way is that how you see it what do you think it would take something like that to happen like a power grid going down for a month or you know what does that look like to you
1: pretty dark actually (laughs) use the pun but um yeah i mean it could happen uh depending on where where you're based um i you know i get up in the morning and i'm happy to be alive and i'm happy that i have electricity and i have water and so on and i don't want this to change um and so uh, I, you know, I, I, I believe that also we, we, we've gone from uh, just pure critical infrastructure protection to critical infrastructure resilience. Uh, you look at DORA, for instance, in for the banking industry in Europe, the the Digital uh, Operation Resiliency Act, um, if I got that right. But anyway, DORA is is all about making sure your your critical systems are resilient. So you know will they go down for a day no problem it'll be a pain but it's okay for a week it'll be a major pain but it'll be okay for a month that that will have societal effects that will have issues with uh potentially after a while riots and and social unrest and so on and so we, we can't really af- afford to do that so um it, it's interesting that idea of um you know, we, we all understand now that we need to protect the critical infrastructure of the cities of 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 um, nations. Now we need to understand that we need to protect our own critical infrastructure because it's a backdoor to the rest. But we need to talk about resilience, right? What? How do I make my way of living resilient? How do I make do I make my way of doing business resilient? Uh, if my e-commerce site goes down, am I out of business or am I 50% out of business, and for how long and how long can I sustain that? And by the way, that, that, that is why some organizations decide to pay ransom, ransoms. And you should never pay a ransom by default because um, if you pay it, you may not get the, the, the right information back or the key back. It may not work. But also, you advertise yourself as somebody who's going to pay. So you're going to remain a target. Right? But the reality is, some companies are like, ah, do you know what? On the grand scheme of things, we're better off paying. And so, um, but but with critical assets, you can't you can't always think like that, you know. So um, I, I think we need to move towards resilience. We've, we've spent enough years developing good risk assessment methodologies and looking at all of that. Now we need to get to the next level. How do I make this a continuous, proactive thing? And I make my ecosystem resilient, and my staff resilient, and myself resilient. Mm.
0: Yeah, you bring up a really interesting point, and that is something that I myself even see as being often overlooked is, you know, the resilience factor of, you know, deploying, you know, this revenue generating application, you know, that is generating, I don't know, a million dollars a day. Well, what happens if that web app goes down? You know, do we have HA set up? Is it failing over to the same location because if it's failing over to the same location it's probably not a good idea um all of these things are often overlooked or put on the back burner and so that we'll get to it you know eventually well in the in the meantime when eventually is is coming you know you can have an attack that takes it down completely and it's like oh that that thing that we said we were going to get to eventually uh never came because it was already at risk you know um well, you know, Matthew, we're, we're coming to the end of our time here, unfortunately, but, you know, before I let you go, um, how about you tell my audience, you know, where they can find you, where they can find Vigitrust um, if they want to learn more?
1: Yeah, sure. So first of all, thanks again for the opportunity to, to talk to you today. Uh, so you can uh, find information about Vigitrust at vigitrust.com, V-I-G-I-T-R-U-S-T.com. Uh, you can find information about myself, uh, com. in one word. Um, I've also published a book called The Cyber Elephant in the Boardroom, published by Forbes and uh, bestseller on Amazon. And you'll find it on on Amazon. And it's all about translating cyber risk into business risk, primarily for non-technical people. Um, And of course, I'm very easy to find on LinkedIn. And I actually love networking. I love meeting people from the industry. There is not a day that I don't learn something new about cyber, and I've been at it for 25 years, and uh, and it's a it's a great industry that way.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks, Matthew. I really appreciate you coming on, and I hope everyone listening enjoyed this episode. See you, everyone.